Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, is Elisa still here? She, she's down. She's teaching the kids. She walked out. But I want to especially th- thank Elisa, even though she's not here in the room at the moment, for that great testimony she just gave. And in fact, that testimony of trusting the Lord uh, really uh, echoes my whole message this morning. So basically, she preached my message for me. So let's go ahead. That's end. Let's go ahead and pray, and we're done. <laughs> But uh, uh, we are going to continue on nonetheless, but, but uh, she really had the essence of it there in her testimony. So Shabbat Shalom again. And as you may know, we're in, a, in an extended exegetical series, uh, verse by verse, through the book of Romans. Uh, and if I'm counting right, today's part four, and we're going to do the first part of chapter three today. Uh, and the theme, as you can see in the overhead, the theme is, uh, is, is no one is righteous. No one seeks God. So let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 9 to 20. So Romans 3, beginning in verse 9, and we have it on the overhead as well. And then Paul says this, What shall we conclude then? Do we, do we Jews, he's, is the context, uh, do we have any advantage? Not at all. We've already made the charge uh, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it's written, there's no one righteous. No, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace, they do not know. There's no fear of God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the Torah, the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the Torah. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That's the first part of chapter 3. Uh, and chapter 3 of Romans, it comes to the end of Paul's analysis uh, of, 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 of he's been going on for several chapters now of what's wrong with the human race, which can be summed up in one word, sin. Uh, and Rav Shaul, Paul here, is giving us a summary statement of the biblical doctrine of sin. And this is one of the most radical and strongest statements in the Bible about what's wrong with the human heart. And we're going to learn three things about sin in this passage today. We'll put them in the overhead. Three things. Number one, what I'm going to call the egalitarianism of sin. Number two, the, tra- the trajectory of sin. And three, the cure for sin. So the egalitarianism of sin, the trajectory of sin, and the cure for sin. So first, the egalitarianism of sin. Look at Romans 3, uh, 10 and 11. Uh, Paul says over and over and over again, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. And then, and then in, the, in the prior verse, verse 9, Paul says the Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. He asks, are we Jews any better? Not at all. 
They've got to remember, Paul's looking back to Romans 1. In Romans 1, he was, if you remember, he was talking about the pagan Gentiles rolling in the streets in, in drunken orgies, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, and Paul gives us this long list of sexual immoralities and, and, and perversions and corrupt practices, uh, both civil and corporate and individual. And then he goes on to chapter 2, Paul identifies himself as a God-fearing Jew, trying to obey the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and he asks, are we any better than them? And then he says, shockingly, no, not at all. So we have the moral and the immoral, uh, the religious and the irreligious. And Paul says, there's no difference. He says, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. The whole world is held accountable to God. By the way, the word accountable here is, is a legal term. It means liable for punishment. And what he's saying here is no matter who you are, no matter what your record, no matter whether you lived a life of, of relative altruism and compassion and service, or a life of cruelty and exploitation and corruption, ultimately, we're all alike. We're all condemned. We're all lost. We all deserve to be rejected by God. And that's what he's saying. Now, how can that be? Uh, and that brings us to the, to the second point, which we'll get to in a minute, that's the trajectory of sin. But before we get there, let me remind you what Paul says back in Romans 2. He, say, uh, he says that, that, that a criminal robbing and murdering people, and then a moral, upright, religious uh, Pharisee who thinks he's good because of his good deeds and righteousness, and because of that, God owes him a blessing, and, and people owe him respect. Paul's saying that as different as those two look on the surface... Underneath, they're both the same expression of the radical self-centeredness and radical self-absorption that is sin. So when Paul says, all are alike, are we any better than them? No, not at all. This is radical egalitarianism. And here are two implications of this. Number one, if you're looking today and you're just exploring Yeshua faith and you want to know what it's all about, Almost always you come unconsciously with the preliminary model in your mind, you know, already determined inside your head of how it all works. And most people typically say, okay, there are some things I've got to do for God, and if I do them, then God, in turn, will be obligated to do this and that for me. That's how spirituality works. If I do this and this for God, God will do this and this for me. That's the unconscious model in most people's heads. Uh, you kind of assume it. You think, you think you're exploring all about God, but you've already assumed the model. What you're actually exploring are the this and the that and the that's. Most people think spirituality works like this. There's some kind of life out there that's considered a good life, and I must adopt it. And there's a kind of life that's a bad life that I must reject. And if I adopt the good life and reject and abandon the bad life, then God will do this and this for me. So my quest is to find out uh, what is a good life, what I need to do, what I need to avoid, and what will God do in return. And that's what you think you're exploring. But I want you to see that the whole model is wrong. Because whatever Paul's talking about, when he calls people to become Yeshua followers and receive salvation, and whatever Yeshua is calling us to, when he calls us to salvation, that can't be simply calling us to stop bad living and start good living. Because Paul's saying here that people who live good are no better than those who live bad. 
They're all spiritually lost. Spiritually speaking, they're all in the same place. So if you think what it means to become a Yeshua follower is that there are certain things I've got to, to stop doing and certain things I've got to start doing, and then God will bless me, you're wrong. Well, what is it then? Uh, what I'm trying to get you to see is that because you come in with a, a preconceived grid in your mind, it doesn't understand or accept the true gospel. Because there's nobody who does except real Yeshua followers. Because no other worldview, no other religion, no other philosophy says anything like this. The fact is, whatever Yeshua and Paul are calling you to, in order to receive their Yeshua salvation, it's nothing like anything in your own mind that you could conceive of. It's not on the mental map of a non-believer. It's a category buster. Uh, it's unique, it's different, it's not what people expect. Because the gospel is not merely something that tells you to stop living like this and start living like that. Now, yes, of course, a changed life is important. But it can't be the main thing. It can't be the chief or the central thing. Why? Because people who live good lives and people who live bad lives are all alike, ultimately, according to God. Here's the other implication. Let's say that you have embraced Yeshua. And you say, yes, I am a Yeshua follower. Do you realize the radical nature of the statement that Paul says, are we any better? Not at all. There's probably no one who ever lived who is more moral and and dedicated and upright, more dedicated to his God and his principles and and to the scriptures than Paul. It's just amazing. When When you read through the book of Romans... Paul goes through this whole list of of sins and idolatry and sexual immoral practices in chapter 1. And then here in chapter 3, he says, am I any better? And his shocking answer is, no, not at all. Now, for Paul to say, I've come to the conclusion through the gospel that the criminal who's robbing and killing and raping people is equal to me, that I'm no better than them, that's unbelievable. Now, remember, Paul was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he would have considered Gentiles as spiritual dogs and unclean. And that here, here he is now, dedicating his life to to living among them, uh, to living with these racially other people. Is it possible, before the gospel came to Paul, that he could have ever looked at these heretics and infidels and pagans and the immoral libertines and said, we're equal? No way! (laughs) Not in your life! But here, but, but now, here's what's going on. A group of people, big swaths of the human race, that he would have looked down upon, that he would have uh, scorned and written off, that he would have showed no love or respect for, the gospel, the doctrine of the universality of sin, has now radically rehumanized the human race for Paul. Radically rehumanized. There's all kinds of people that he, he would have looked down upon and caricatured, would have wanted nothing to do with them, but now he says, I'm no better than them. Uh, these people are radically rehumanized in his mind. Now, do you think that this doctrine of, of depravity, uh, that there's no good people and bad people, because, but we're all lost, we're all in of salvation, we're all sinful, some theologians call it total depravity, do you think this doctrine will make you look down on people? No, not at all. Just the opposite. Look what happened to Paul. If you believe in the biblical doctrine of sin, and you think about it, and and you take it into the center of your life, 
It'll rehumanize the human race for you. All kinds of people you would never give the time of day to, you now will love and respect. Why? Because I'm no better than them. Wherever you are, typically, you know, socially, your social location, it makes you prone to look down your nose at people of certain races or ethnicities or nationalities or social classes that are different from you. Even your vocation has this effect on you. So, for example, I'm an artist. Oh, those pathetic middle-class bourgeois, you know, they're terrible. Or, or, or you're a middle-class bourgeois. Oh, look at those freaky, stupid artists. <laughs> or, or you're a conservative or you're a liberal. Do you really, really look at the other side and do you really say, I'm no better? No, of course you don't say that. You say, I'm a lot better. <laughs> Whatever your racial or cultural or ethnic or national group is, you've got a history vis-a-vis people who aren't like you. And your social location makes you tend to despise them. But if you believe in the doctrine of original sin, the biblical doctrine of sin, you know that you're no better. Do you see what I'm calling the radical egalitarianism of the biblical doctrine of sin? Secondly, let's also learn here about the trajectory of sin. Look at Romans 3, verse 10. By the way, Paul here is quoting from from Psalm 14. He says, there's no one righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Now, if you're looking critically at Paul, you're a secular person looking at this, you're going to see, you might object, you, can, you might say, that's not right. People seek God all the time. There's plenty of people who are spiritually searching, right? Looking for God, looking to see, seeking how to please him. And then Paul says in, in verse 12, again, according from the Torah and, the, and the, uh, the Tanakh, according from Psalm 14 and Ecclesiastes 7 and Psalm 53, he says, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And again, the critic, the skeptic might object. Wait a minute. What do you mean no one does good? People do good things all the time. But if you look more carefully, what you'll see is that Paul is giving us here of a definition of sin that goes deep. And what he's showing us here is that sin is, re- is relational before it ever becomes behavioral, before it ever actually breaks the law. Uh, it's relational before it becomes behavioral, and indeed it may never become outwardly behavioral, but it's still sin deep within our hearts. Even as Yeshua himself said, you know, lust is, is adultery in the heart, and, and hate is murder in the heart. So look at this phrase in verse 12. Paul says, they uh, turn away, all have turned away. And then and, and in verse 11, uh, the word seek. No one seeks for God. Uh, turned away, seeking. These are directional words. What he's talking about here is the trajectory. It's talking about direction, your aim. And therefore, sin is not so much a matter of whether you're doing bad things or doing good things, but whether sin is mainly a matter of what you're doing something for, your inner motives. And what we're being told here is that sin is, is what makes you want to get away. That's the direction, the trajectory. It wants you, wants you to get away from God. No one seeks him. Sin makes you not go towards him, but away from him. Sin makes you want to get out from under God's gaze, out from under his hand, out from under his control. You, why? Because you want to be your own savior. You want to be your own Lord. You want to keep God at arm's length. And you want to stay in control of your own life. That's what sin makes you want to do. And there's two ways, by the way, to be your own Savior and Lord. 
Two ways to keep God at arm's length. One is to be a law unto yourself, to be very, very bad, to live any way you want. The other, ironically, is to be very, very good. Uh, and you go to shul, and you obey the Bible, and you do everything you possibly can to, to live like Yeshua. Uh, why? So that God has to bless you. So that God has to save you. And in which case, you are trying to get control over God. Which means you're not seeking God. You're seeking things from God. You see, the text doesn't say that no one seeks blessings from God. Of course they do. The text doesn't say nobody seeks answers to prayer from God. Of course, people do that all the time. It doesn't say no one seeks forgiveness from God. Yes, they do. Or no one seeks spiritual guidance from God. Yeah, of course they do. We admit that. But the text says no one seeks God for himself. And all your so-called serving and all your so-called doing good is ultimately really for yourself. It's away from God. It's even away from others. It's towards self-centeredness, and that's the trajectory. Let me give you an example of what this uh, looks like. What looks, on the one hand, looks like selflessness and, and looks like sacrificial love and service, but really it's not. The people in AA, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, they know all about this sort of thing. Uh, and what I'm about to describe happens all the time in, in, in their meetings. So let's take a married couple where one spouse, let's say the husband, is an alcoholic. And here's how it often works. Often the husband is an alcoholic, so what does the wife have to do? Over the years, she's got to bail him out all the time. She's got to make excuses for him, clean up his mess, constantly rescue him. And then, of course, she turns on him and says, Do you know what I'm doing for you? Uh, I'm not leaving you. I'm staying here with you. Uh, I'm trying to keep this marriage together. I'm trying to keep our family together. I'm trying to keep our family economically afloat. You know, no thanks to you. Uh, and I have to do this and this and this and all these things. And look what you're doing to me. I suffer so much for you. I give so much for you. And yet you do this over and over and over again. So what? So look at this picture here. She seems to be the one who's serving, right? She seems to be the one who's giving of herself. And yet AA will tell you how often this will happen. If the husband gets into rehab and begins to get better, very often the marriage will fall apart. She won't like it when he gets better. She won't be able to deal with it. Why not? If she really loves him, doesn't she want the best for him? If you love a person, you want the best for them. And the best thing for an addict is what? Is to get sober. If she really loves him, she would love for him to get sober. But she doesn't. You know why? Because she needs him to be a mess. She needed him to be a mess so that she could rescue him. That she could feel good then about herself. That she could feel worthwhile. So that she could feel in control. So she could demand things of him and of other people. And she could feel very noble and very good and upright about herself. Ultimately, she wasn't seeking him and his good. She wasn't loving him. She was loving herself. She was not serving him. She was serving herself. She was not seeking him. She was seeking, seeking things from him. She was seeking power. She was seeking control. And underneath all that selflessness, underneath all that service, she was really serving herself and being radically selfish. She was doing all the right things, but she was doing it for herself. 
And here in Romans 3, Paul's saying that's the case with us. All of us. Unless the Holy Spirit comes in and radically changes your heart, no one seeks or serves God for God. No one really seeks him or serves him, rather they're seeking things from him. No one even truly serves others. Because you always, uh, you always serve people, you always serve God, as long as it benefits you. Because you can feel good about yourself then, you, then you can make demands, uh, you can feel noble. But no one seeks God for himself. No one does good. It doesn't mean no one formally does good things. Of course, you know, it's better to give to the poor. Of course, it's better to forgive someone uh, than it is to harm someone or spend all your money on yourself. Uh, of course, I'm not saying that there aren't such things as virtuous deeds. Of course there are. But we're looking at the heart. We're looking at the trajectory. And if, and if you're struggling with Romans 3 and this biblical understanding of the deep, innate selfishness and sinfulness of every human heart, I challenge you to take an honest look at your own motives and the secret thoughts and the intentions of your own heart and all their blackness uh, and inward twistedness and how ashamed and embarrassed you would be if all of your secret thoughts and your fantasies and your envies and jealousies and your lusts and your unbelief and your anger and bitterness and bitterness and pettiness and your selfishness and nastiness of us all were exposed publicly. And yes, a non-believer may do good things and may be seeking God for certain things. But what are the true underlying motives? I remember once somebody complaining to me about the problems of all these unfulfilled expectations in their life. And they said, David, why should I even be praying? You know, what am I getting out of this relationship with God? I mean, he doesn't answer my prayers. There are all these failures in my life. Uh, I can't find a spouse. Uh, whereas the wife of the alcoholic would say, I work my fingers to the bone for this man. What am I getting out of it? And then as I was talking to this person, all of a sudden she had this thought that has popped in her mind. And the Lord gave her this amazing revelation. And her thought was this. God was saying to her, now, only now, when everything is seemingly going wrong in your life, now we'll find out whether you've got into this faith to get God to serve you or in order for you to serve God. Now we'll know. And when we realize that this profound selfishness and self-centeredness and self-focus and self-absorption, that is the default mode of the human heart, then we begin to realize that Paul is right when he says there's no one righteous. There's no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good. Every part of the heart, until it's redeemed by Messiah Yeshua, either does bad things or does good things for the wrong motive, uh, for ourselves. That's the biblical trajectory and doctrine and understanding of sin. No one seeks for God. No one is righteous. No one does good for goodness sake or for God's sake or even for other people's sake, but really, for honest, for our own sake. And that radical self-centeredness is what's making the whole world a mess. So you need to see that until you are, are, are born again, you are running from God even in your good deeds. 
That's Chaim. Do you see that? And then lastly, number three, how do we, what's the cure? How are we going to cure this? Because there's a massive spiritual problem infecting every human heart from Adam and Eve on. So look at Romans 3, verse 13. Again, quoting from various Psalms. Romans 3, 13. Uh, Paul says, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I'm going to look out at all you today. You all look marvelous. You look awesome. (laughs) And I love you, and I'm honored, and I'm humbled to serve God with you. But these verses I just read, these are what you and I truly look like in God's eyes. We look like the night of of the living dead. (laughs) <laughs> spiritually speaking underneath all of our, our good uh, underneath all of our good deeds all of our giving to charity all of our trying to do the right thing the trying to honor your parents uh, all your mitzvot your good deeds underneath all of that there's anger and there's touchiness and there's turning the, turning on people who, who cross you and there's a great deal of discouragement and unhappiness because God's not doing what he ought to be doing there's discontent there's unbelief and lack of trust. Uh, there's tremendous jealousy and envy when we see others doing better than us. There's unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness and, and grudges. There's addictions and lusts. There's lack of kindness and gentleness to others. There are feelings of superiority and judgmentalism and pride. Inside, if the secrets of our heart will be revealed, it's a mess. It's like spiritual leprosy. You know, outside you may look fine, but inside you're full of disease uh, and rottenness and decay and death. What will cure us? And Paul gives us two things here that are the keys to the cure. First, he says in verse 19, Romans 3.19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, why, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now remember, this is the end of Paul's exposition of why we, we, all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, why we need God's salvation. Starting in verse 21, which we'll get to next week, he begins to open to us up, up what is this salvation. And he opens the next section with his famous words in Romans 3.21. Now apart from the Torah, the righteousness of God has now been made known, to which the law and the prophets, the Torah and the prophets, prophesy, testify. Now, before that, that's next week, before that, he's bringing us first to this point. And he's saying, you'll never be able to receive Yeshua's salvation unless, number one, you first shut up spiritually. You're shut up. Unless every self-justifying mouth is first silenced. Your mouth first needs to be silenced. And you admit you stand guilty before God and you have no defense. Now, to be shut up spiritually, to have your mouth silenced, as he says here, means you acknowledge you have no excuses. You have no plan B. You see, if you say, yes, I know I did wrong, God, but I can do better next time. Uh, I know I've done all these wrong things, but I can turn it around. Uh, I see my motives are bad, but I can change my motives. I can change my heart. Shut up. You see, as long as you say, I can do better, I know I can change, I can make it right, Paul says, you haven't shut up yet. And therefore, you're not ready for God's salvation. You can't receive the cure for sin 
unless you realize and admit and confess, I can't fix myself. Uh, and you realize even trying to fix yourself just makes you, makes, makes you even worse. Because every effort to put it together and somehow become a better person and really try harder, it's really just another effort in self-justification and self-salvation and self-sufficiency. You just try, and you're actually making yourself worse and keeping yourself from God's solution, from the true cure. And the condition of spiritually shutting up and humbling yourself and seeing your absolute spiritual poverty and bankruptcy and therefore just being quiet so you can receive the cure. By the way, this doesn't mean beating yourself up. Oh, I've done so wrong. Shut up. You're still focused on yourself. You've got to get to the end of yourself. The only way to begin to get pulled out of our radical self-centeredness of our, of our sinful heart is you must get to the end of yourself. And that means not just saying, oh, oh I'm so sorry for my sins. I'll try to do better. Uh, because you not only have to be sorry for your sins, but you also have to be sorry for the selfish motives for why you didn't, did anything right. Which means you must come to the end of yourself. There's nothing you can do now. You've got to wait and listen and receive. John Gerstner, the theologian, uh, recently passed away. He put it like this. We'll put this on the overhead. He says, uh, let's put the next slide, please. He says, because of the gospel, the way to God is wide open. No sin can hold you back. Because God has offered justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between you and God but your good works. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. But most people don't have it. Most people have, look at all the good things I've done. Shut up. But look how bad I've been. I can improve. Shut up. (laughs) All you need is need. All you need is nothing. But most people don't have it. Why? We need to be poor in spirit. But most of us instead, what do we want to do? We want to be middle class in spirit, don't we? (laughs) We want to make something of ourselves. To present back to God. But God's not impressed. The way you open yourself up to salvation, the only way you can receive God's salvation, is not only to repent of your sins. Pharisees repent of their sins. When they sin, the Pharisees admit they've done wrong and they vow to do better. They repent of their sins, but at the end of the day, they're still Pharisees. If you want to become a Yeshua follower, you must not only repent of your sins, but also repent of the reasons why you've done anything right. You must repent of your self-righteousness. And now you're in a position to say, I need something completely different than, uh, uh, than just some help to live the right way. I need completely different. So number one, shut up. Spiritual silence. Number two, the second, the most important thing you need for the cure is the fear of the Lord. Look again at Romans 3, beginning in verse 13. Their throats are open graves. All these litany of things, Paul's quoting here from the Psalms. Uh, Their tongues practice deceit. Poison of vipers on their lips. Their mouths are full of of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. Why? Why all these things? That's the answer to the next verse. Because there's no fear of God in their eyes. That's the underlying cause of sin and unrighteousness and worldliness and pride 
and fleshliness and corruption. No fear of the Lord. No, our once here in America, our once Judeo-Christian culture, we've lost all fear of the Lord in our society as you rush headlong into more and more decadence and licentiousness and degradation. And the Lord is just giving us over uh, to our depraved minds uh, and the wickedness of our shameful lusts and our idolatry and self-centeredness. And truly, more and more in America today, due to our lack of the fear of the Lord, we've suppressed the truth by our wickedness. And our thinking has become futile. And our foolish hearts darkened. And this lack of the fear of the Lord has even infected the body of Messiah as well. We're not immune. You know, you know many churches today stress only feel-good messages and positive thinking and motivational pep talks. Sin is no longer mentioned. Repentance, that's a forbidden topic. And any mention of hell, oh my God, you get barred from the Pope or if not thrown out of the congregation. <laughs> Even many evangelical churches today teach you can be saved simply by asking Yeshua to be your Savior without denying yourself, without taking up your cross, without actually following Him. He no longer needs to be your Lord, they teach. And if you, as if you can somehow divorce His role of Savior as from His role as Lord, no more than you can divorce Yeshua from Messiah and, and make them two separate entities. You can't, because they're two sides of the same coin. We in the body of Messiah in America today are in serious declension and decline. We must return to our first love and recover a healthy fear and awe of the Lord. And in Romans 3, the details here, if we had the fear of the Lord, we wouldn't be doing all this litany of sins that Paul just listed, of gossip and deceit and evil speech and cursing and bitterness and shedding innocent blood and, and hatred and anger and resentment. All this long list in verses 13 to 17. And then in verse 18, he explains it's all caused by a lack of the fear of the Lord in our hearts. Paul says recovering a biblical fear of the Lord is the antidote, it's the cure. And the lack of the fear of the Lord is the cause of all these ills. And restoring the fear of the Lord, he says, is the cure. So what is the fear of the Lord? All through the Bible, the fear of the Lord is a major, major concept. Do you know how often the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? It says it in Job, in Ecclesiastes, in Psalms, in Proverbs, over and over again. This means that without the fear of the Lord, there is no wisdom, no real wisdom. Without the fear of God, you can't even begin to think straight. Well, then what is this, this fear of the Lord? If it's the cure for my sin. Uh, for us, the problem is this phrase, you know, fear of the Lord, it sounds like being scared of the Lord. But biblically, that's not what it means. Look how it's used here in, in the scriptures. Let's look at some examples of how it's used to get at, at the definition. So, first of all, in the Torah, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. The Torah says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. So Moses here is equating fear of God is to love him with all your heart and all your soul. Look at the Psalm, Psalm 119, 38. Because you fulfill your promises to me, I fear you. Because you've been so good to me, Lord, the psalmist is saying, I'm filled with fear. 
Psalm 130, verse 4. But because you've forgiven me, therefore I fear you. Whatever the fear of the Lord is, it increases whenever we see and experience God's salvation and his grace and his goodness and his love. It increases. So then why do we call it fear? It sounds more like it should be called joy. Why fear? The fear of the Lord, here's my definition, is the joyful, humbling awe and wonder before the salvation of God. One more time. The biblical fear of the Lord is the joyful, humbling awe and wonder before God's salvation. It's called fear because it's not just happiness. But when you really see the salvation of God and what it is, on the one hand, it affirms you to the skies. But at the same time, it humbles you into the dust. And that's why it's called fear. It's a joyful fear. Awe and wonder before God's great salvation. But it turns out, it, it, it turns you out of yourself. It turns you away from our natural tendency to be curved inward upon ourselves. It leads you out of your self-centeredness. Why? Because on the one hand, you're too humble now to be just so self-centered. On the other hand, at the same time, you're too affirmed to need to be self-centered. And therefore, this, this, what I'm calling this joyful fear is the cure. And it happens, one, when you see the salvation of God, the Yeshua Adonai. What does that mean? It means this. Because you, you don't naturally seek God, because nobody seeks God. God's salvation has to be God seeking you. There's a lot of religions that say human beings can seek for God. If you try really hard, you can find him. So God sits up there in heaven and he says, here are my rules. Here's everything you need to do. And if you do them all, I'm sure you can find me. In other words, in most religions, salvation is you finding God. But Yeshua faith is the opposite. Salvation is God seeking and finding you. And if you know what he did for you in order to achieve that, it will fill you with this joyful, humbling, sin-curing fear. Here's an example. God goes to the prophet Hosea. He says, Hosea, see this woman over here? Her name's Gomer. Marry her. He's a prophet. He obeys. He marries her. Not long after, he begins to realize she has wayward feet. She's unfaithful to him. Habitually. With multiple men. And as she begins to have children, he realizes these kids aren't mine. So he names the first one, he names the first one Lohumah, meaning not loved. He names the second one Loami, meaning not mine. <laughs> Imagine your name is not mine. <laughs> and her unfaithfulness gets worse and worse and worse. And eventually she just abandons him and the kids. She goes after this man and that man and the next man and the next man and another. Finally, one of the men sell her into slavery. And Hosea turns to God and he says, Lord, remind me why you told me to marry her. (laughs) And the Lord basically says, so now you'll know something about my relationship to you and to Israel. Now you'll know what it's like for me. Now you'll know what it's like to be me. And here's what I want you to do, Hosea. I want you to go into the slave market where she's being bid upon. I want you to buy her back, to purchase her freedom, to ransom, to ransom and to rescue her. 
I should take her back, and then you'll know what it's like to be me. So there's Gomer on the auction block, being bid upon as a slave. Uh, She's most likely stripped naked, so the customers can see what they're buying. And she's standing there, and suddenly, to her shock, she hears her husband's voice bidding for her. And he purchases her freedom. And instead of berating her, he walks up to her. He takes off his own cloak. He covers her nakedness. He says, now you'll come home and be my wife. It's an amazing story. I encourage you to read the book of Hosea. And yet it is nothing compared to what God has done for you and for me through Yeshua. Do you know what God is saying to us through Hosea? Poor Hosea. Uh, yet I had to do it to give you a graphic illustration of what I've done for you. God's saying to us, Hosea, he just had to go to the next city uh, to get back his wife. But I had to come from heaven down to earth to find you. You weren't seeking me. I had to seek you. I had to find you. And I didn't just um, dig down deep into my pockets to get some money to purchase your freedom. I had to go to the cross. I had to suffer and die. I had to pay the penalty for your sins. Look at your sins. Someone has to pay for it. You can't. And I was stripped naked on the cross so that I could clothe you with my robes of righteousness and take you home with me. When you see, not that you have the ability, if you try hard enough to find God, no, no, no. But if you see the salvation of the gospel, the salvation of Yeshua the Messiah, if you see it as it is, as God in the person of Yeshua, coming, seeking us, finding us, coming to us at infinite cost to himself, then it will fill you with a holy fear, a joyful fear. And you'll find that the cure for your sin has begun. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand and pray. I want the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that in your word we are confronted uh, by our sin. Because your word is powerful. And it's it's two-edged, it's two-edged sword. Cutting through all of our lame defenses. Cutting through all of our self-justification. And laying bare the wickedness of our heart. Not just our outward actions and, and our speech, uh, but our inward motives and our secret intents and our hidden thoughts. And it's you, Lord, uh, that one day we must stand before, laid open and bare before you and give an account. And there be no one innocent on that day on our own. We can only stand before you, Lord, by the blood of Yeshua which alone cleanses us from all of our sins. Our own righteousness is nothing more than vain and empty self-righteousness that you tell us is like filthy rags in your sight, like an unclean thing. So, Lord, we ask you today to forgive us, Lord Yeshua. Forgive us for going our own way. Forgive us for resisting your lordship over our life. Forgive our our rebellion uh, and our prideful spirit, Lord. Lord, today... We each pray that I fully submit myself to you, Lord, uh, to your plans for my life. I repent of my sins 
and my sinful thoughts and, my, and, and the beliefs and the lies behind all of my sins. Lord, I confess today that behind every sin is a lie that I have believed. So, Lord, transform me by the renewing of my mind. Change my mind, change my beliefs to conform and correspond to your word. Help me to think of everything the way you think about it, Lord. And finally, Lord, help me to stop justifying myself and to instill within me a renewed, powerful conviction of your fear, of the fear of the Lord, of the fear and awe and reverence of you, Lord. I confess so much of my sin, Lord, if I'm honest, is due to a lack of proper fear of you. So renew that healthy, biblical, holy fear. Remind me one day I must give an account. Restore to me the joyful, humbling awe and wonder before your salvation. For I pray this all in your name, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.